just be a good neighbor. You have a job, just be a good coworker. If you don't have any of those things, you have a family. Be good to your family. And in doing that, you're, you're fulfilling your roles and you're living a good life. You're being excellent. There's something really beautiful and empowering about that. We always have something to do well. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this podcast, Michael and I discuss one of the most important Stoic ideas, role ethics. This is a decision-making framework and ethic from the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, and it's really a model for how to live a meaningful life by performing the roles you've been assigned and the ones you've chosen with excellence. We talk about what this means, what the different kinds of roles we occupy are, according to the Stoics, and how they provide direction for our lives. And as always, if you'd like to help us out, please subscribe to Stoa Conversations on your podcast player and give us a rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And my name is Michael Trombley. And at some point, we'll need to think of a different introduction sequence, but that <laughs> point is not this episode. Instead, the purpose of this episode is to chat about role ethics. And Michael put together some introductory notes on this one, so I'll hand it off to him first. Yeah, great. So the reason I want to talk about role ethics, role ethics are really, in terms of, in terms of how you live your life for Stoicism, they're the meat of how we think about what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. If you practice stoicism or you've just been studying it just been learning about it stoicism has some controversial key ethical commitments some of those that i wrote down are one we should prioritize our character over external things so stoicism says the only thing that's really good and bad is your character the choices you make virtue or vice in other words if something happens to you your reputation gets ruined you your business goes under even you get a severe physical injury these things are not good and bad in, a, in, a, in any sort of absolute sense. Maybe it's preferred that that doesn't happen, but they're not extreme in that way. That's one stoic ethical commitment. Another is that we should always believe what is true. So we should be committed to seeing the world as it actually is. A third stoic view is to avoid passions. So to avoid ex the extreme emotions that come from believing things that aren't true, such as, you know, my reputation's been ruined, so I need to get revenge. There's a passion that comes from the false belief that something external and insult matters. And the, the fourth main ethical commitment, or one of the four big, biggest ethical commitments, is that we should still, despite these things, we should still make proper use of externals. So even though virtue and vice are the only things that really matter, we demonstrate our virtue and vice like athletes playing with a ball by how we navigate the external world, the external circumstances. So we demonstrate virtue and vice by how we make use of our property, you know, our reputation, our physical body, things like this. So that's all good and fine. And I think some of that is really important. 
think some of that is, is the most important thing, actually. And I really like those ideas. But these are all pretty broad categories. They don't really, doesn't really give us a ton of advice about how to deal with the nitty gritty of, of actual life, how to deal with ethical conflicts or conundrums or confusions, mainly this point of, you know, make proper use of externals. What does it mean to make proper use of externals? What does it mean to actually navigate these, these external circumstances virtuously? And, you know, what do I do in a specific situation? How should I deal with my career? What is the best way to navigate family drama? Should I move to a new country? Should I take a job that helps people? helps people less fortunate than me? Or should I stay and focus on my own community and my own immediate family? Is charity work, is helping people less fortunate than you even what's best? Is that even what it means to, 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 to live a good life? Or are there other things I should be doing with my time? You know, role ethics, that's where we find Stoicism's answer to these kinds of questions, these questions that make up 80, 90% of other practical ethics. And I wanted to cover it because it's a bit complicated and it sometimes gets put to the side, but it, but it, it is how you figure out how to do that. Those, those, those vast majority of decisions in your life. So just to emphasize what Michael has seen there, I think the study of role ethics is important because it provides different action guiding principles or an action guiding framework for making decisions. That's one aspect. And it's also another thing to focus on and always come back to are these questions about roles. Whenever you encounter a dilemma or an obstacle, it's always useful to think, to return to what's my role here? What am I doing here? In addition to the stoic virtues. So you have the cardinal virtues like courage, temperance, justice, wisdom, and you those are going to provide some information about how best to live, but we can add even more details still with this picture of role ethics. So just to say more about why I think this matters is that it improves decision-making and it helps give a focus to our life. Yeah, and two things to add to that, Caleb, because that's a great point. One is that most other practical ethics are going to provide you a set of decision-making tools. That's why people are attracted to ethics. So something like utilitarianism is going to say, well, calculate what produces the most net gain or utility and the least harm. Deontology is going to say, well, you know, make a choice that doesn't break an absolute law, like you should not kill or you should not steal or you should not lie. And virtue ethics always kind of suffers from or can seem like it suffers from the circularity. Because virtue ethics' claim is, well, act the way a great person would act. And then, you know, it leaves people kind of stuck. Well, what is a great person? What does that look like? How do I make that decision in the moment? And Stoicism, we've already talked about, it, provides some tools, you know, contemplation of the sage, emulation, look to other great people and copy them. But, you know, you are not a Socrates, Epictetus says, right? You can't just copy other people. You have to understand yourself and your situation that's never happened before. And how do you navigate that? Role ethics provides that decision-making tool, as you said. Another thing that's important about role ethics is that people that don't have role ethics, there is this misinterpretation of stoicism that gets often confused with a kind of nihilism where something comes up or a kind of defeatism. Something comes up and people think, well, 
it's not in my control, so it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't, it, it's not up to me, so it doesn't matter. Or people think that stoicism is just about, you know, reconceptualizing events so they don't make you upset or they don't cause passions. It's not about that. It's about there is ethical commitments to your community. There are ethical commitments to other people. And role ethics is what grounds those. Epictetus goes through his three topoi, his three areas of study. And the first is about, you know, wanting to be a good person and wanting not to be a vicious person. That's the, that's the area of desire and aversion. But then his second area is about impulse to act and not to act. It's about how to navigate external circumstances. And he has a famous quote, because we should not be unfeeling like a statue. So the, the Epictetus is very explicit. The goal of Stoicism is not to be unfeeling like a statue. It is not to not be hurt by anything that happens and not to care about anything that happens. It's not to have this absolute indifference. And so what moves us, once we, once we care about virtue and vice, what moves us from a statue to a member of our community is, again, this role ethics. So with that in mind, role ethics, if it, if it didn't originate with this thinker, then it was fully developed by Panatius, whose major work was called On Duties, and discussed the practical ethics of navigating externals. He lived from 185 BC to 110 BC and was the last undisputed head of the Stoic school. So we often talk about Zeno, we often talk about Chrysippus. They were the first and third uh, head of the Stoic schools. Panatius was the, the last undisputed head of the Stoic school. Around you know 110 BC, he would have passed away. And he's typically what's called a middle Stoic. We don't talk about the middle Stoics that much because we focus on the early ones. They founded it. And then the late Stoics, are you know Epictetus, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius? Those are the ones who focus on ethics, and we have their writings. But he fully developed this idea of role ethics that, that Epictetus picks up. And when we when we think about role ethics, I already mentioned this, but we think of Stoicism is about being virtuous, about living in accordance with nature. But Epictetus provides this metaphor of we're supposed to navigate external externals well, and Epictetus provides this metaphor of being like the ball player. So. The Stoic is the one who does not get overly attached to the ball, but understands that, you know, their job is to do the best with it and still try to play the game. And, you know, how do we throw the ball? How do we make those judgments? As you mentioned, that's role ethics. And role ethics says that in any situation, we have a role to play and we navigate that situation well when we fulfill that role. We navigate that situation poorly when we don't fulfill that role. So. The next question naturally is going to be, what are our roles and what do they commit us to? Before I go any further, I should say that a lot of the, a lot of the notes I've taken here, these are from Brian Johnson's book, The Role Ethics of Epictetus, because that's in Epictetus, we get the, the most developed picture of this role ethics. Um, Johnson's a professor at Fordham University. I've had the chance to, to chat with him a couple of times. Really smart guy, knowledgeable. Recommend that book if you want to look into it in further detail. So anything else to say before we jump into it? No, I think we're ready to do it. Cool. I hope you're ready too, those <laughs> listening. So, so the first thing to understand, so the question is, okay, well, I, you know, I live well when I fulfill my role. So what are my roles and what do they commit me to? How do I know what my roles are and what do they say I should be doing? So I'm going to be talking a lot here about Epictetus because he's the one who really develops this, as I said. 
So the first thing to understand is that there's two kinds of rules. So there's one that's general to all humans. So all humans share this general rule. And then there are the rules that are specific to you as an individual. And here's a quote from Epictetus. For in all that we do, unless we refer our actions to some end, we'll be acting at random. There is besides a particular end and a general end. First of all, I must act as a human being. That's the first end, Epictetus says. The second end relates to each person's specific occupation and prohiresis, their, their faculty of choice, their character. The liar player must act as a liar player, the carpenter as a carpenter. So as you were saying before, Caleb, Epictetus says, look, we need a decision-making criteria. Otherwise, we're making decisions at random. We base that des the decision-making criteria on our ends, our roles, and there's two of them. There's the one as a, that's shared by all humans, the role of the human being, and then there's the second kinds of roles which relate to our specific occupations and you know, our specific dispositions, and I'll get into those more later. But that's the, that's the general overall category. All humans, and then you specifically as an individual. So next question is, you know, what is the role of a human being? What is that role that is shared by all people? Well, there's a couple characteristics to this that Epictetus says. A couple of things that our role as a rational person commit us to. First, we, we must act rationally. We should follow nature, which comes back to that point I was saying before about believing what is true. We should not be violent, careless, gluttonous, or passive. These go against our pro-social animal commitments. And Epictetus says also, we should have a kind of shame that holds us to a high standard. And here's another quote by Epictetus. Know first who you are, and then adorn yourself accordingly. You are a human being, that is, a mortal animal who knows how to use impressions rationally. And what is rationally? In agreement with nature and perfectly. So we should know who we are. We should hold ourselves to that standard. We should be embarrassed if we, if we act below that standard which is to say not to make careful use of impressions. And that is, Epictetus talks a lot about this, is when we're kind of acting like a wild animal rather than an intelligent animal, an animal that can make use of impressions. Anything to add to, to that about our general role of human being? Yeah, I think it's, it's useful to think about this broad role of a human being as having two aspects, two aspects that sort of flow from nature, as it were. The ancient Stoics thought nature was perfectly ordered, and it also had this providential side, this telos that is the purpose. And when that comes to human beings, you could think of human beings as having the rational aspect of themselves, which comes to proper management of impressions, pursuing knowledge, and then this other aspect, which is rationality in the social sphere, rationality as it looks like living with others as a social animal. You know, of course, another part of not being a, a wild beast, as it were, is that human beings are the kind of being who can sit in a 13-hour flight and not have, like, chimpanzees might completely trash the plane by the end of it. We are social, uh, in addition to having this ability to manage impressions. Yeah, I think that's great. And absolutely right that we're going to stress that, that rational capacity, that, that ability to, you know, play nice with others, 
or to contribute to a community. There's also something here. We talk a lot in, on this podcast, for those that have been following, we talk a lot about living in accordance with your nature or living in accordance with nature. We often say, well, you know, that means the way things really are. There's kind of a factual part to it. And then it means your nature, your nature as a human being, which has a you know, an end that fits into the rest of humanity. And when we think about role ethics, we can think about, well, well what does he mean by a role? You know, he means you have a role to play. You have a role to play in this universe. And if you fulfill that role, you can think of a kind of a total lack of friction between who you are and the nature of reality around you or the world around you. You know, you can imagine someone who's trying desperately to be something that is not themselves, trying desperately to be something different than who they are. And that's going to create a kind of friction, a kind of suffering, a kind of tension. And so to fulfill your role is to, to, yeah, to kind of perfectly align those two things. And so obviously the most important role is that role of a person, which as you've cut out is, is this kind of rational one and then this, this pro-social animal. But I guess I, I wanted to clarify that too, is that, so when we talk about living in accordance with nature, it's the nature of other things, the nature of yourself. What is your role to play within that broader nature? And when we're trying to figure out that role you have to play, that way you can reduce the amount of friction. The first thing you do is you consider your essential nature as a human being. That's always going to be the biggest thing because if you go against that, if you act as Epictetus says, you know, like like a wild animal, if you say I don't, if you I don't need other people, I can be an island, or it doesn't matter if I act violently, carelessly, gluttonously, or passively. These things don't matter to me. You know, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt because you're, you're not acting in accordance with your nature and you're not going to align with the nature of things as they more broadly are. So the, the thing with that, so that's the general rule shared by all people. That's the number one thing to keep in mind. But the thing about that is it doesn't get as much further than those ethical commitments I committed to us to at the beginning, right? About don't have passions, live in accordance with nature, make you correct use of impressions. It doesn't really get as much past that, the general rule. So the really fun part is when we get into our specific rules. So how should I structure? I'm a person, but so is everybody else. How should I live? Me as a person, me in my specific context, you know, you listening, you as you, who you are as an individual, you know, we're, we're not all the same. We shouldn't all live the same. So yeah, we shouldn't become cannibals. We shouldn't murder. We shouldn't be entirely sloth or passive, but what do I do with my life? How do I, how do I navigate that part? Well, this is when you get to the second category, which are the roles that are specific to you. And you can, again, you can think about these roles being given to you by a God. You know, I think the Stoics would say that. You can think of these roles as being given to you by nature, which is, again, the Stoics would, you know, think those two are, are, are the same, nature and God. But this is kind of your role to play. You can also think of it, I would say, in terms of self-actualization. You know, when people talk about, I'm, I'm become the person I'm supposed to be. I'm living the life I'm supposed to live. These are the kinds of these are the kinds of things we're talking about when we're talking about our specific roles. So, the first type of specific rule is grounded in our particular capacities. So these limit some types of lives and open up some other types of lives to you, your particular capacities and talents. So Epictetus provides the example: the role of the wrestler is limited is limited to those with a certain kind of strength. So in this case, I mean, all Epictetus' point here, take it or leave it, change it if you want, but you say, look, only certain kinds of people are going to be professional athletes. Only people who are born 
with certain physical traits are going to be professional athletes, if not in everything, certainly in something like track and field, certainly in something like basketball. Like, look, you're just not going to be an NBA player if you're 5'4". It's just not going to happen. So there's this kind of, there's a kind of limited roles that come from your abilities, but it also determines our, our roles to a certain extent. So if we're particular ta particularly talented at something, we should lean towards that, or we should listen to that talent and consider that talent. I think this is easier when you think of it in terms of a providential universe. So you can use your abilities as evidence of what you were made to do. And then we also here can understand that kind of friction, right? Where if you start, if you ignore your talents, your capabilities, your proclivities, and you lean towards things that you're not inclined towards, you're not talented at, you're not disposed towards, you're going to be kind of increasing that friction. You're going to be going against what you were made to do in a sense. I think an interesting thing here, Caleb, as I'm saying this, interested to get your take on this. We're often inspired by people who do things in spite of things. And I don't want to say that the Stoics, and I think the Stoics are also proud of people who do things in spite of things. So I don't think the Stoics are kind of limiting this. You know, you wouldn't want to point to, I don't know, somebody who participates in the Paralympic, for example, and say, well, you didn't understand because you, were, because you had a disability, you didn't understand your role not to be an athlete. I wouldn't say that. You know, there, there's some nuance here. It's not just as simple as the thing you were good at when you were six and everybody encouraged you to do. But maybe that, that, you know, maybe that Paralympic athlete is disposed to have an incredible talent towards adversity. Maybe they have an incredible talent towards athletic ability and they just happen to have something that has happened to their body that's outside of their control. There's different ways to cut it, right? There needs to be some nuance. But the truth remains that we should listen and understand and pay attention to our talents and our dispositions. Yep. Yeah, I think you're right that we often see stories of, oh, this is the entrepreneur who managed to come back from nothing, make all these financially risky decisions. They could have lost their house, but they didn't. So we'll, we'll hear that those kinds of stories they managed to push through. But we'll always hear less about people who got leverage against their house because they thought they had some new novel business insights and then end up in a hospital because they feel like they've completely failed and have let down their family and so forth. There's the line from Cleanthes, which is fate guides the willing and drags the unwilling behind it, which I think captures this. And it's always hard to see perhaps whether you are pushing yourself in a way that helps realize your nature or if you're pushing against the grain, hoping for something impossible. But you know, often I think people, people do both. And perhaps at least in terms of the stories we're often faced with, we'll get many of outsized positive outcomes and hear less about the people who were dragged by fate. Yeah, lots of survivorship bias and inspirational stories, I should say. And there's something, in, just because there's something inspirational about somebody who did something with low chances of success does not mean it's great advice for how to structure your own life, I should say. <laughs> you know, right, something right. to... So that's the first thing. You're stuck with this question, how should I live? Well, I shouldn't live not like a human. I shouldn't do antisocial, violent, careless things. Well, and then I should consider my talents. What am I good at? What am I disposed towards? 
And then the third level is to consider next your relationships. So to quote Epictetus, an example of the relationships he considers for world ethics, son, father, brother, citizen, husband, wife, neighbor, fellow traveler, ruler, and subject. So lots of things, lots of examples here. You have family relationships. You have permanent relationships of being citizens or temporarily permanent, long-term. You have things you consensually entered, like husband and wife, things that you probably didn't consider but came about anyway, like neighbor. Things that happen just in passing, like fellow traveler. You're walking down the road. How should you treat somebody you come across in your travels? And then you have large-scale, again, political power dynamics of ruler and subject. So of these relationships, there's two kinds. There's those that are natural and those that are acquired. So natural relationships are necessary, or rather I should say, really always apply to you. So those you want to think of family relationships, son, mother, daughter. Regardless, you know, even if your parent passes away, you're still a, you're, you're still a son in a, certain, in, in a certain sense. You're still a daughter in a certain sense. And then there's the acquired relationships. They have some flexibility. So friend, you owe somebody something when you're their friend, but you can choose to stop being their friend. Neighbor, you owe somebody something when you're their neighbor, but if you move across the country, you don't owe that neighbor anything anymore. They're no longer your neighbor. And each of these positions, Epictetus says, each of these relationships have an appropriate set of actions or duties that correspond with them. I'll do another quote by Epictetus here. He says, if you're a counselor of some city, remember that you're a counselor. If a youth, remember that you're a youth. If a senior, that you're a senior. If a father, that you're a father. For each of these designations, upon reflection, always suggest the proper deeds. If you go and disparage your brother, I tell you, you've forgotten who you are and what your designation is. So Epictetus says, look, when, when we want to know how to navigate our family relationships, we want to know how to navigate interpersonal relationships or these kinds of, these kinds of practical decisions, reflect upon your, the role you have in that relationship, the role you have in that engagement, and the kind of proper functions or duties that come with that. One thing I should say here, I sometimes see reflections of this. I, I read this on the internet or have discussions with people and I say, well, it's, it's saying it's not accounting for abusive relationships or it's not accounting for extreme examples. You know, it's saying I should always be nice to my father even if my father was a terrible person. And I don't think that's what it's saying. I think what it is saying is there's a certain set of obligations you should meet as a son or a daughter. And if you've met those, you know, it's smooth sailing, but that doesn't necessarily mean total acquiescence, total passiveness. So it's not saying, it's not saying you need to be subservient. I don't, I don't take it that way when I read Epictetus, but it's saying that, look, it's a, it's a kind of relationship ethics. It's a kind of idea that if, if there was two people burning, you know, locked in a house, it would not be wrong of me to save my family member first. There's a reason for that. It's because I, I, you know, I have a certain relationship with them. Yeah, excellent. I think there there are two main things that come out to me here. One is, so if you think about the first kind of specific role, we are talking about our particular capacities, our limitations. And one thing to note here is that although it's difficult to be an excellent family member, excellent citizen, excellent neighbor, in some senses, it's difficult. It's within nearly anyone's ability to do this. And that 
no one is prevented from being an excellent family member, citizen, neighbor, what have you, due to their natural capacities. That doesn't mean there won't be different situations. Some things might be easier for others. What that looks like for a particular individual will differ, of course, because people are exceptionally different and their relationships will be different because of that fact. That's a good point, Kel. Just, just to add to that, there's, there's no talent in being a good brother or a good neighbor. That's, that's your point. It's like there's nothing anybody can do any of these. Whereas not everybody can be a pro athlete, as Epictetus says, not everybody can be a Socrates, can be Olympic champion. Maybe not everybody can be emperor of Rome, but everybody can be, you know, a good, a good dad or a good mother or something like this. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. There's no ceiling that rolls out some people. So yeah, that's one point. The other point is on the issue of relationships generally. I think in some senses, the Stoics just were traditionalists in the sense that they thought we have unchosen bonds and bonds to our family and city that we need to respect even if we do not always like our family members or city. And in that sense, they're traditionalists. I remember meeting someone once who said that she didn't love her parents because she felt like her parents were the sort of people who, if she met them at a party, she wouldn't be that inclined to engage with them at all. They wouldn't become her friends. For the Stoics, they had a completely different view. They thought, you know, some of our relationships are chosen in that sense. They are acquired. You know, we do have friendships, but not all of them are. And we still have these duties of obligations to them regardless. That doesn't mean that the child should always follow what the parent says. Indeed, Musonius Rufus has a lecture on this, where their parents should always obey their children. And in so many words, he says, no. In some sense, I think it's the Stoic view is similar to, I don't know if this has been drawn out before, perhaps I'll write a piece on it some point at some point, but it's similar to the Confucian idea of remonstration, where subjects have a general duty to obey their rulers, but they also have a duty to object when their rulers are mistaken and to do that in a specific way that the ruler will hear and ideally come to change, change their view. So that's, that's, those are some thoughts on the traditionalist aspect of the relationship roles. And by traditionalist, I guess, I guess to clarify, what do you mean by traditionalist? You mean culturally conservative you mean what do you mean when you say that yeah i suppose you could call it small c conservative that's another word i'm not sure if that's the best one maybe traditionalist isn't the best one either but i do think there's over the past two centuries at least in the west people have become more individualist and people value autonomy more and they value chosen relationships over unchosen ones, like being the families, the closest example, but also if you don't like your city, you can move. And you see this in a number of different cultural products. I think many movies are, children's movies are essentially about kids rebelling against their parents and being justified in doing so. You see children moving away from their parents relatively 
early moving them into nursing homes, which I think many previous generations would find pretty barbaric as a form of like moral regress. And then alternatively, I think on the parent side, you see many parents not supporting their children perhaps as much as they should through, through their life. And that is that does have some serious advantages. People are more individualist and more responsible. They're free. They're less likely to be bound by the random constraints of some other person. But it does also have the cost of people failing what would be considered traditional, historically small C conservative duties. And perhaps I'll find a better word for this, but that but that's what I mean. Yeah, I think I get what you mean. I mean, I thought the friend that your friend example was perfect. This idea of, of what could be more kind of autonomy or individualistic than like the people I owe obligations to are the people that I like if I met them at a party. And because of that, I, I know I would choose to be friends with them. That's kind of the criteria for love. That's the criteria. You know, not to twist their words, but it, but it, that's the that's a, an interesting way of approaching the situation. Whereas Epictetus is just making the simple point that, look, sometimes you might not like your family, they're still your family, right? You might not like your parents, they're still your parents, your brother, your sister, you might have, they might have, you might have issues with them, they're still your siblings, and that there's a certain degree of responsibilities that come from that. And when you're reflecting on what should I do, you know, my brother's just done this terrible thing, what should I do? Well, the fact that you're, they are your brother has something to do with your consideration has something to do with your decision-making process there. And there are certain rules that come along with that or certain obligations that come along with that. And Epictetus here, you know, he's leaving a bit unsaid because I think he thinks those would be pretty clear. But there's something to be said that we still have that idea 2,000 years later. You know, I think if we, if we wrote down, what do you owe your brother? You'd probably say, well, you know, a bit more leniency, probably, you know, some accepting extreme examples, you know, to support them if they needed help to assist them if they needed help, these kinds of things, to forgive them in a way that's different from a friend or somebody that you just engaged with, you know, from your own choice. So there's these kinds of, there's these basic values. I guess you would take traditionalist view and the Stoics are just committed to that. I think that's an interesting thing to pull out and an important thing to pull out. And yeah, it can be, can be helpful in that decision-making process too. To, it, doesn't, it doesn't start you from a point of kind of zero, zero. It starts you from a point of, well, I have some things to lean on here when I'm navigating family dynamics. Right, right. And I think that, I guess the more controversial point maybe would be that the Stoics maybe think some of those traditionalist perspectives extend politically, extend into the relationship as a citizen, extend into the relationship between ruler and subject as well. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's interesting. We should probably have a different conversation about that because on one hand, that is a, a natural extension, but on the other hand, you think, well, the Stoics essentially city-states at the at least for the early greeks not like these large nation states and then of course you see that the adoption of cosmopolitanism as well this idea that everyone is in some sense as common everyone is a citizen of the world so you do have those just both of those strains that are in tension worth digging into we'll move along but worth digging into we'll get back to that later in a different episode maybe so up to this point, we've gone through, you know, you have the general role of a human being, the specific role of our, your talents, your dispositions, and your relationships. And the third category that's specific to you is that of choice. So, you know, finally, we can 
determine or we can take on a role just through choice. So, you know, if it, if it doesn't conflict with our, with our relationships, if it doesn't conflict with our talents and dispositions, it doesn't conflict with being a person, then just pick one. And Epictetus says here, who do you wish to be? First, tell yourself that, then act accordingly in what you're doing. And Epictetus clarifies, though, that, that, you know, this, as I said, this can't go against those other ones, but it's this kind of, it's this final, if, if there's no conflict on the way down, now it's just up to you. Just have some fun with it. Pick something. But I also think the point Epictetus is making here, though, is that when you pick something, you're committing yourself to something. And it's really important to live consistently. And you're kind of actually making an ethical failing when you don't act consistently. So if I can use an example, maybe we would say, well, what do I want to do with myself? Well, I decide to be a writer. And then if you decide to be a writer, I imagine Epictetus would say, you know, wake up early, write, commit yourself to doing that every day, take criticism from people on your writing, even if it's difficult for you, put yourself out there in a way that's vulnerable, understand that you, that you might fail as a writer for a certain period of time, but continue to release and do, release books or writings or blogs and don't let that dissuade you. And so commit to this role. But if you say, well, I choose to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer, and then you don't do any of the things that come along with it, you're not just being impractical or ineffective. You're actually in a kind of way, I don't want to say pathetic, but you're living inconsistently in a way that I think would certainly Epictetus might find pathetic. Because that inconsistency shows that you know you haven't really committed to this position with an understanding of what it entails. You're probably just, you know, just just picking it frivolously. So there's a kind of, I guess the point I wanted to make is there's a kind of freedom that comes with your final role being based on choice, but there's a responsibility that comes with that. And the responsibility is to commit to that choice, live consistently with that choice. And if you don't do that, then you're failing yourself you're failing the role and the kind of obligations that come along with that role. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think? Yeah, and this is where the possibility of autonomy does enter into the stoic sphere. So once you have recognized your potential capacities and realize your relationships, then you can think about what are my preferences here. And I suppose one question I have here, to what extent do the stoics think are preferences are a matter of creation or discovery. So do we, you know, does the writer discover that they are a writer or is it the sort of thing that someone can just choose to be? The way that I think about this, I mean, good question. The way that I think about this is I think I go back to that first one of kind of talents and dispositions. And so I think you might have a talent or a disposition to be creative, to be a storyteller, to be an uh, somebody who inspires people, somebody who informs people. And then the writer is a way of actualizing that talent or that disposition. But you could also be a filmmaker. You could be, I, you know, I don't know, maybe a, a politician. There's different ways of actualizing that talent or that disposition. So I think, and that's why I talked about these talents and dispositions as being in a way they're kind of limiting or there, there's a kind of floor that you have to reach to be certain things, and there's kind of a ceiling you have to clear to own that 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 is to allow yourself to be certain things. But then I think once you're within that, you're allowed to just kind of choose what you want within it. That's the way I conceptualize it. What do you think? Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's exactly right. That it's a initial 
a hoop, you need to clear these initial capacities. And that's certainly related to what you enjoy doing is correlated with what you're good at. There's certainly some amount of correlation there. And I, I suppose I would say it seems like a mix of discovery and creation to me. So you're discovering what you're good at. You know, oftentimes we might try something and discover that I thought I would like this, but turns out I don't, or the reverse, which is why people advise doing internships in different fields in college, say, or something of that sort, mm -hmm. going to different classes to actually, you know, don't knock it until you've tried it. That's, that's a sort of thought that you can discover what you want, what your preferences are. And then perhaps though there are other ways of in which we might just make a choice. And then once we've made that choice, we learn to enjoy the results of that decision. Yeah. My example was pretty discovery heavy. Figure out what you're designed for within a, a certain subsection of things you could possibly do. And your point is that there, you know, we, we have the capacity to change ourselves. We have the capacity to learn to like things, to develop interests we didn't have before. I'm not sure. I, I maybe I have to go back to the Epictetus or, or dig into it a bit a bit further. I think I think a mix makes sense. Epictetus talks a lot about the power of habituation. Talks a lot about the power of repeated action to kind of change our dispositions. He normally talks about that in terms of like being angry, you know, or vices. But presumably you could kind of do this in the other direction, which is like, you know, yeah, if I do this long enough, I can kind of figure out what I like about it. Or I can kind of, you know, take some joy in it. And there's something empowering that. And I think as you said, Kel, just to, just to reiterate for those listening, it sounds like we're only getting to autonomy at the very end. But in the practical picture, this is going to end up being quite a lot of things you get to choose from, right? It's things that you're that you you're pretty much disposed towards, you're good at and tend to like to do, and things that don't conflict with your role uh, as or your social roles. Then other than that, everything else is on the table, right? And that's, that's really going to leave a lot of options. But it, what way, if you, once you pick something off the table, commit yourself to it. Be consistent in that. Now, so we went over role ethics more generally. I want to do a specific example. So the roles we talked about, they, they tell us how to navigate the world of indifference. They tell us how to navigate the external choices we have to make about objects outside of our character. And I wanted to do an example of how career choice, this might look for career choice. So first, you know, I said, what do I want to do? Do I like my job? Or I'm just starting a job for the first time. You give the internship example, Caleb. So first you consider your natural role as a human. And this eliminates any evil jobs or any vicious jobs. I can't be a thief. I can't be a drug dealer. I can't be an assassin. I can't be a con man. And that's because that goes against my, my, my human roles. Then I consider my natural talents. What does it feel like I was made by nature to do? This is going to eliminate a, a lot of options, but it's going to leave a lot of options on the table too. I think about, you know, what am I talented at? What am I disposed towards? Then I consider my relationships. So of the remaining options, which best fit with my social relationships? So maybe I want a higher paying job to support my family. Maybe I want an easier job that lets me stay at home and spend more time with my family. Maybe I want to make my parents proud who have sacrificed a lot of money or a lot of their time to provide me with certain options. So I kind of take into consideration these pro-social rules. Maybe I want to be a doctor. 
to help other people's lives, you know, help my community, right? You think about these kinds of things. And, and these are these are fancy examples, you know, but but maybe just, you know, you, you want to make sure that what you choose doesn't violate any of these. Then you're left with a smaller subsection. And then Epictetus's point is it's, it's up to you, you know, choose, pick one. The things that are left on the table, pick one. But as I said, pick it with commitment. They, they also tell us how to navigate. So that's a kind of personal existential question. What do I want to be? Who am I? That's a rules answer. But they also tell us how to navigate conflicts. So as we've talked about before, according to Epictetus, we owe something extra to our family. We owe something extra to our, our chosen friends, to those in our immediate social network. And that's information we should consider when making decisions. But they also, it also gives us a kind of a hierarchy of decision-making criteria. So we don't owe anything to our family and friends that conflicts with our role as a human being, right? Conflicts with those four virtues you mentioned at the start, the four stoic virtues. So I think about a story or an example of somebody who gets involved, you know, you, you see this in film a lot, somebody who gets involved in a gang with their brother or gets pulled into the dark side of their family, of the family business. And that's someone who overemphasizes the family role, but neglects the human role. And that's how the hierarchy of rules will tell us that's what's wrong with that, or that's why your appeal, well, that's my brother, I should have done anything for him, doesn't stack up because you're violating that higher rule of the human role if you get into, you know, if you join a gang to be with your brother. Right, right. Excellent. Do you, do you think those examples stack up? Any, any, anything to add? Yeah, I think those examples stack up. Certainly. I think yeah, in terms of navigating conflict, if you're a virtue ethicist, you always ask, you know, what would the most virtuous person do here? And what the role ethics can add to this is you can think of what are my particular roles in this specific circumstance and what is being an excellent, say, coworker, being an excellent friend look like in this situation. And that can often help narrow down what's the right thing to do. So that's that's one aspect I'd add. And I think another aspect I'd add is sometimes there's this, a general sense of ennui or mean, meaninglessness I think a number of people face in their lives. And the sense in which the Stoics say, meaning is not that hard to get. All you need to do is do the ordinary things and do them excellently. So the sorts of things that we're talking about really are, in some sense, mundane, be an excellent human, recognize your strengths and limitations, respect your relationships, make new ones, and then from there, choose and be consistent in your choices. These are not any mysterious capabilities. They're not some call to be you know, a hero that seems like far too steep of a price to pay or something like this and said these are ordinary things of an ordinary life where if we perform these roles as well as possible we'll live an excellent life and that's something that is achievable to anyone and can provide a source of meaning i think that's not too hard to get i think that's really beautiful caleb i never thought about it in that way before but this kind of idea of, of you know, somebody who who's, feels meaninglessness in their life, feels the struggle, what do I do? It's like, well, you have a friend, right? Like, just be a good friend. You live next to somebody, just be a good neighbor. 
you live next, you, you have a job, just be a good coworker. If you don't have any of those things, you have a family, be good to your family. And in doing that, you're, you're fulfilling your roles and you're living a good life. You're being excellent. There's something really beautiful and empowering about that. We always have something to do well, in other words. Mm -hmm. We always have a purpose to live for and a purpose to live up to. Even if, as you said, we're not the hero on some grand journey, which in a way kind of throws us out of accordance with nature, right? Because not everybody can be a hero. It doesn't really make sense. As Epictetus says, not everybody can be Socrates. And so there's this kind of cognitive distortion of this feeling that you should be the superhero, but there's this real kind of joy, meaning, and purpose in just fulfilling the roles you already have really well. I never thought of it in that terms, but I'm, it's, it's got me pumped up. Excellent. Well, Very good. Very good. Call, call some friends after this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that was, that's an overview of role ethics. And I tried to put some meat on the bones for something that can sometimes be some a little obscure. I, I wanted to leave us off with a couple questions, reflections that I came up with after doing this. And the first question I had, we hit on a bit, but you know, how socially specific are given and acquired roles is what I'm left with after this. So you talk about being a traditionalist, you know, is, is the nature of a child or a parent is that universally linked to all humans or is that culturally specific? Is, are, is this a way, in other words, are we building some relativism into Stoicism by, by latching relationship ethics onto cultural norms or are we not? So it does, is, is what it means to be a good anything, is that going to depend on the city we're in or is that going to stand the test of time? I think that's an interesting question. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. That's what I'm left wondering about, thinking about. Yeah, I think I think it's fine to leave that as a as a question, and is is something worth worth thinking about some more. Another way to put the question is, I think it's clear that stoicism, specifically virtue ethics, more broadly, is context specific. Circumstances matter, and then of course the question is just how much. Do they matter? How culturally specific are some of these yeah. roles? Yeah. And then another thought I had going through role ethics was I really love that Stoicism leaves this space for personal creativity and creation. So not everything is this utilitarian calculus. There's this kind of pressure when you take on a consequentialist view of ethics or you take on utilitarianist view of ethics, which is to say, well, every decision I make has to be about maximizing the good. Every decision I make has to be about helping others and limiting harm as much as possible. And there's something nice about that, but there's also something kind of depressing. I don't know. I, I think about this example, this utilitarian Superman we would talk about in philosophy undergrad, which is the idea of where if utilitarianism was true, then Superman would have an ethical obligation to just like spin in a circle and operate power turbines to generate power for as much of the world as possible. At any moment, he was not generating power. He was committing a gross ethical harm. And it was a very weird way to look at life. And I think that's why I am attracted to virtue ethics in general, is that it still builds in being a good person, but provides some space for autonomy, for, for personal creation and creativity in that space. And I, and I love that Stoicism builds that in without being... You know, it's both not the individualistic picture we were talking about. It has that traditionalism, but also 
you know, leaves a lot of space for just pick something, just commit to it. And that I, I find, I, I find quite inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and there's potentially some issues around, well, the utilitarian calculus is perhaps useful for political questions. You know, if you're thinking about what's the optimal tax policy or how should I manage dealing with the homeless problem in my city, it's sometimes harder to get a lot of mileage out of role ethics or virtue ethics for these more systemic problems. So perhaps that's where a more utilitarian mode of reasoning might be useful. But that's not to say that it's going to be the kind of reasoning you're going to use in all areas of your life. Yeah. So let's not get rid of it now. Let's not throw the whole thing out. Some value for the systemic or maybe maybe the right way to approach these larger issues, but not always the most satisfying. I, I don't I don't I mean I just don't like it for individual stuff. And I and I and I'm virtue ethic provides this alternative that has this creativity built into it. But this, but the role ethics has some some concrete things to say about what we should do too. Mm-hmm. The last thing, which is a kind of concern I have, is I would like Epictetus to be a bit more clear about what constitutes a violation of our human role. So I can use the extreme example of, you know, don't join a murderous gang to like support your brother. But I, I, when we get a little bit hazier, a little bit messier, where does where do we draw that line between well I'm being a good friend I'm being a good family member I'm being a good citizen versus well now I'm doing something that goes against you know the four virtues I would say so I, I think that's a little hazy it's also important to note here I'm just saying this at the end of the podcast Epictetus does not talk about the four virtues very much at all almost almost not at all as someone who myself who studied Epictetus as, as the main stoic I dug into. I almost like didn't even, I didn't realize how important these were to other people until I started reading other, other Stoics. Epictetus does not really care about them. He almost exclusively replaces them with this role ethics. And so that kind of conflict between human role and relationships, interesting one to me. And I, I, I wish that Epictetus would have explained it a bit better. Right, right. I think all of us are probably familiar with people we know, or at least reading about people where they explain they they were in a relationship and it was abusive and then they tell you the details and it's remains unclear to you how the relationship was abusive and it seems like well you probably got out of that too quickly perhaps or at any rate the other person may not have been the problem on the other hand there are also cases of you come across a case where someone is clearly in a relationship that's not working that's either abusive or just not uh, functioning well for whatever it, it's supposed to be, whether it's a working relationship or a romantic one. And it can take the people in those relationships years to, before they realize that sort of thing. And coming up with either principles or being able to build the ability to reason about those sorts of things when we might be in them, I think is a, a challenge for sure. So I think mm-hmm. that, that you're hitting that. You know, there's always a question. Am, am I missing something because of how close I am to the situation in either either direction? Yeah, great point. Anything else you wanted to add on role ethics? Let's see. So I think one last quote from Epictetus, I think we should 
mention is the following from the discourses. We are like actors in the play. The divine will has assigned us our roles in life without consulting us. Some of us will act in a short drama, others in a long one. You might be assigned the parts of a poor person, a cripple, a distinguished figure, or public leader, or an ordinary private citizen. I wanted to make sure we got that one in because you have this metaphor of being an actor in a play, this idea that so much of life is not up to us. What is up to us are managing our impressions, our decisions, and judgments. So I wanted to make sure we got we got that line in. Yeah, good ending to end on. Good good to ruminate. Awesome. Um, great. Excellent. Thanks for listening all. Yeah, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.